Unlike we are taught by both nature and scripture, our God formed us, he formed our ears and our eyes, but the gods of the heathens are formed by the hands of men. And so we read of the fall of Dagon and his lifting up by men. Here now the reading of God's holy word, 1 Samuel chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod and the coasts thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. And they carried the ark of the God of Israel about thither. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron, and it came to pass, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought about the ark of the God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go again to his own place that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died, and the men that died not, were smitten with the emeralds, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 relate to us the fall of Dagon. God in his glory is also very witty. And we find that in this passage of scripture. God is mocking the gods of the heathen. Notice verse 1. The Philistines took the ark of God. 
Now, this was very foolish on their part as they would learn the hard way. But do you recall from chapter 4 why the Ark of God was where it was? It was the superstition of the people of Israel. They said, let us go fetch the Ark of the Lord and it will save us. They had confidence in that means of grace that God had ordained, representing to them in external form both the law of God contained inside of the ark and the gospel of God represented by the mercy seat or the place of propitiation above the ark and the worship of God with the angels faced inward, pointing them to the adoration of God himself in heaven. These were means of grace to them, and yet they thought the means of grace will save us. That was their confidence. So they superstitiously brought the ark out, and the priests who were wicked and godless men, Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, they brought it out, they died, the ark was taken, Eli died. Now there are no priests, no high priest, no sons of the high priest. So the Philistines take the ark. And they bring it into the house of Dagon, perhaps reproaching and contempting the God of Israel. Here's the spoil of our war. We're going to take it to the treasury of our God, our great God, Dagon. By the way, the word Dagon means fish because Dagon had fish-like attributes as well as man-like attributes. Now notice verse 3, what happens to Dagon? Their glorious, triumphing God falls upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Now, if you have any sense about you and you take the ark and bring it to the house of your God and then your God falls down to worship the ark, what should you do at that point? Well, let's keep it around for seven months, right? That makes a lot of sense. Let's do that. What this is, is God mocking them. Your God will bow before the articles and artifacts of my worship. That's what he's saying. And I'm going to make sure it happens. So God causes him to bow in worship. Dagon was vain and futile. He was the work of men's hands. God made the hands that made the specific idol that they worshipped. Who's greater? God who made the hands or the hand made God? Well, it's obvious. In fact, the church fathers argued that you should rather worship the painter than the painting. You should worship the carver. Why? Because the carver at least is the workmanship of God. God made him in his image. And then that workmanship, he made the thing. So what's greater, the thing he made or the maker of the thing? Well, it's obvious. So if you're not going to worship men, then stop worshiping the idols and worship the true God. That's what the Lord is teaching them. Notice, they took Dagon and set him in his place again, verse 3. No one's there to help the ark. The ark God will take care of. He strikes them with judgments. But they have to come and they have to pick up the ark and set it in its place. How pathetic is that? Their idol needed their help. I've fallen and I can't get up, right? So now they have to come and bring him upright. I note then this doctrine. Images are teachers of lies. They need a sculptor 
They need a carver or a painter or a workman, or they cannot exist, period. Much less can they move, can they stand up. You can watch videos of people carrying statues of the Virgin Mary. One time I watched one, they were carrying it along in procession into their little synagogue, and then Mary fell over. What were they supposed to do? Well, they had to pick her up, and she was broken, by the way, and they had to put her back on top of their little ark that they had Mary, supposedly their little idol on. And that illustrates the point. They said to the Protestant reformers that images are books of the unlearned. You know that? That was an argument that they made. We said God hates idols. He prohibits the bowing before them, the offering of religious worship. In fact, we use the same arguments that the early church apologists use against the heathens. And they said, well, no, there are a lot of people who don't know how to read. What do they need? Images. They need pictures, and then they'll learn about the crucifixion and the incarnation and the day of judgment. They need pictures. And our response was this. Images are teachers of lies. That's what the Bible says in the book of Habakkuk, I believe. Images teach you things that are not true. Namely this, that man ought to offer religious honor to his inferior. What does nature teach us? that we ought to show honor to our inferior or to our superior? Well, it's obvious, superior. Now, if that superior is your parents, you have a duty of honor to them. But if that superior created all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and upholds all things by the word of his power, how much more honor than to your parents do you owe to the living God? So God is infinitely superior to us. Therefore, if we honor that which is our inferior, we invert the order of nature. And God says, those that worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, what's the judgment for that? A debased mind to do those things that are not convenient. And what sort of things are those? Sodomy and lesbianism, which is against what? The order of nature. So idolatry is always punished by God with sodomy and all these lawless ways, a debased mind. This then rebukes any semi-heathen religions of images, of paintings, of icons, of pictorial representations of divine power or persons of saints or of angels, and any act of worship offered to those things. That's what the second commandment is all about. Now notice verse 4. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Now, let's think about this for a second. What does your head do? Well, could you think if your head were severed? Could you see with your eyes? Could you hear? You could not. What about your hands? What, are the, what is the use of the hands? Well, it, it does things, doesn't it? You can accomplish. You can work with your hands. God's hand is his power at work, as we see in this passage. His power was at work to crush the Philistines at Ashdod and at Ekron. All these places, the hand of God, the workmanship of God. What is he saying? Your God has no thoughts. Your God can do nothing. Your, your God is an idle God. Your God is a foolish God. Your God is a vain God. We just sang about this, didn't we? 
The Lord did plant the ear of man, and here then shall not he, did Dagon plant the ears of man? No, God did. He only formed the eye, and then shall he not clearly see? God sees everything. He formed our eyes. Dagon formed nothing, and can see nothing, and can do nothing. Now certainly, at this point, they say, we should repent of our idol worship, right? Is that what they say? Oh, no. Let's not touch the threshold where the head and the hands were. You see what they're doing? They take the judgment of God and his demonstration of his supremacy and they say, let's add some more superstition. That'll fix it. Let's slap on some more religion on top of our false religion and that will take care of the problem. Superstition added to superstition rather than say, Dagon's a false god. I'm giving him up. They had a narrative, as we say. Dagon is God. Okay, so he lost his head and his hands. That's fine. Let's just honor the place where the head and the hands were. Doesn't make any sense, does it? No, because their eyes are blinded. Images teach lies. Let us not harden our hearts as they did, as we'll sing in Psalm 95, Lord willing, this evening. When we hear the voice of God, when we observe his judgments, when we see his power or his glory, what does he call us to do? To fear him, to repent of our sins, not to say, well, but Dagon's the real God. Let me figure out how to adjust to his falsehood and make him real again in my own imagination. The hand of the Lord, we are told, was heavy upon them of Ashdod. This is ironic sarcasm. Where are the hands of the God of Ashdod sitting on the threshold, right? Where is the hand of the true God bringing his vengeance down on the inhabitants heavily in Ashdod? He smote them with emeralds. This is God mocking them. Your gods, he's going to show very clearly, are like useless emeralds and mice. They destroy you, they corrupt you, they kill you, they are vile, and yet you still honor them. This plague was from God. He did it. As are all plagues. Because of our fallen condition, we are liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forevermore. All the sufferings of this life are inflicted by God. There may be no specific sin, whereas there are at times specific sins. God says, I will inflict this punishment for this sin. That's what's happening here. God is inflicting a specific disease, this burning, rising tumor in their secret parts, filled with pain and blood, to kill them or to put them into intense discomfort because why? What did they do? Oh, these poor people of Ashdod, they're such victims. God was so severe. No, they stole his ark. They refused to repent of idolatry. They profaned his holy things and they thought they'd get away with it. And they wouldn't repent no matter how hard he struck them. So they say, here's the problem. It's our environment. Here's the problem. If we just get rid of the ark, that will fix this issue. Now they're partially correct. Worldly men have some notion of wisdom. If, well, if we don't have the ark here, maybe the problem's fixed. But what's their real problem? They're sacrilegious. 
They're idolatrous. They worship a false god. They harden their hearts. They will not hear. They will not repent. That's the problem. Fix that, everything's fixed. They could go and ask Israel, say, hey, we have the ark. Can you show us how to honor God? Could you show us where he says what we're supposed to do? Are there rules about this ark? Yeah, you're supposed to have it in Shiloh. Okay, let us return it to Shiloh. Let us come there and worship. Do they do that? Of course not. Blinded, hardened. Let's just get rid of it. Because after all, we want our God to have his hands and his head. They don't want to fix the root cause of their malady. They want to fix the evil of their afflictions. And that's a lot like us, isn't it? I don't want to suffer, but I don't want to repent either. So let me just fix my environment rather than repent of my sins. And if and when God does afflict us, beloved people of God, where should we look? Circumstances? Well, my problem is this person, that person, this thing, that thing, finances this, or the place I live, or whatever. Let me fix that, and then that'll take care of everything. No, it won't. When God afflicts us, as he afflicted the Philistines, let us ask, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What is my problem, Lord? Please demonstrate it to me. Help me. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. What is the thing I need to hear? What is the thing I need to do? What is the, need, the thing I need to stop doing, Lord? Then we have the deadly travels of the ark among the Philistines in verses 8 through 12. Dagon is fallen. The ark is sent away. Now, they gather whom together? Verse 8 tells us, all the lords of the Philistines. Now, this is what we call politics, okay? We've got a religious problem and a medical issue attached to it. We've got all kinds of people dying. We've got, we find out later, mice consuming all their land and crops. They've got emeralds that they can't know what to do with. How do we deal with this? So they have a political solution. Let's bring the lords of the Philistines, and what shall we do? Now, with the ordinary success of a politician, what do they say? Well, let's ask the God of Israel what we should do. No, they don't want to listen to God's voice. What do they do? Well, let's, let's just take it down to Gath. Maybe that'll fix the problem. Typical politicians, some useless solution that doesn't fix the underlying cause and makes people suffer more. Sound like politics? Because that's exactly what it is. Do we have hope in political men who do not fear God or listen to his law? Will we have political solutions without national repentance for our sins? Without crushing Dagon to powder and burning him in ashes? Will we have that? No, we will be disappointed. If we do not repent of our idolatry, you can get all the lords of America together. What are they going to do? They're not going to fix the problem. They're going to make it worse. Let the ark of God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. It's four miles down the road. Maybe the air there is different. Maybe the water is different and you won't get your emeralds and you won't have the mice and you won't be destroyed. Wrong. The change of scenery will not do the trick. Contrary to the politicians, if you just fix the environment, everything will be great. You know how we get rid of crime? 
More education, that's what we do. Let's fund the schools more. Oh, really? You know, the schools that teach people that they're animals instead of humans, right? Well, what do you think happens when you teach men that they're animals? Do you think they control their desires or do whatever they want? And if they do whatever they want, what do you think happens to crime? Goes down? No, crime goes up. So the more you fund your godless education, the more crime you get. Oh, how, why is that happening? Because people are evil and you haven't solved the root cause of the problem. God smites this city. It's not the air. It's not that Gath is a nice mountainous region, beautiful scenery. No, everybody's dying. Small and great. Little babies toddling around, aged men with long gray beards, they're all dying. Lords of the Philistines, the pauper and slave, everybody's dying. So, what's next? Let's send the Ark of God to Ekron. Let's do that. You know who their God was? It wasn't Dagon. Beelzebub, that was their god, the god of Ekron. We read this in 2 Kings 1-2. About 10 miles from Gath. We tried four miles, that didn't work. Let's send it a little further down the line. Maybe 10 miles will do the trick. Maybe Beelzebub can handle the ark of God. And what do the rulers say? They're a little bit wiser than everybody else, apparently. At least the Ashdodites and the Gathites. They say, you're trying to kill us? What are you doing sending this thing? We don't want it. We don't want this thing coming and destroying us. Let it go again to its own place. Finally, somebody with two brain cells to rub together. Finally, somebody realizes, you know, the problem is we don't know what we're doing with this thing. It has a place where it belongs, and that's not here. Send it away. Some wisdom among the heathen, not saving wisdom. <clears throat> the Geneva Bible notes state on verse 11, the wicked, when they feel the hand of God, grudge and reject him, where the godly humble themselves and cry for mercy. You see that? It's a worldly wisdom. They're not going to humble themselves and cry out, God, have mercy upon us. No, send him away. We don't want him here. Are they right? Sort of. In a worldly way, they're right. If they have the ark, they will suffer. If they don't have the ark, they won't. So that's sort of true. But the problem is you've rejected the living God. You haven't submitted yourself to him. You haven't come under his authority. Problems again. If you didn't die when the ark came, you had this burning tumor in your secret parts so all the people for their dead and dying ones, for their disease and their suffering, cry out and their cry ascends up to heaven. Now you'll notice God does not listen to this as a prayer for salvation, does he? He doesn't come down and stop it because they do not, they're not crying out in faith as his people cry out and their cries ascend up to heaven and then God avenges them of their adversaries. No, they have no such status. 
They have no mediator. They have no grace. They have no word of God. They have no means by which they can approach to the living God. This is merely the cry of the damned, their misery, their death, their suffering, with no one to console them. Why? Well, they didn't learn the lesson, did they? They didn't humble themselves before the Lord. They didn't say, our idols are toast. We're burning them today. The temple will be torn down. We will go up to Shiloh and worship the Lord. They said no such thing. And therefore God offers them no hope. Our health, is it given to us by doctors, by food, by supplements, by medicine? No. Our health is the free gift of God. Whatever level of suffering you have is because God decided that was good for you, if you're his people. If you're not his people, it's because he hates you and he's punishing you for your wickedness. So become his people so that your sufferings can be turned to your good. But our health is the free gift of God. We do not deserve it. And therefore, we should never take any good thing in our bodies for granted. If it's freely given to us, what do you say when you receive a gift? Thank you. Praise you, God. You have done good to me because he could do this to us every day of our lives and worse, and we would deserve worse. Let us give thanks to the Lord. Rejoice in whatever measure of good health he has granted us and pray that we may prosper and be in health even as our souls prosper, rather than grumble and reject God when we're afflicted, as the Philistines did. And thus far, the exposition of God's holy word, 1 Samuel chapter 5.